Hello, big burrow friends. I love that. Isn't that great? <laughs> oh, so good. And little, little burrow friends, glad you guys are in here as well. Uh, well, I tell you what, before I get into the message, I want to uh, communicate something to you guys that's pretty exciting. And uh, we've, just, uh, we've been in this long journey as a church uh, over a lot of months and in the craziest time in our history uh, with pandemics and everything else going on. Um, but we have been praying as a church, and we started this last year, uh, that God would uh, help us make room for the mission of God in our lives and with our facility on our campus. And so we have been communicating with you and you with us, and uh, it really has been a very encouraging process where all of us have prayerfully been seeking God's direction. And so uh, I want to tell you this morning, we feel like we've gotten some direction in terms of the timing for uh, moving forward on our facility. So uh, before I tell you the exact timing, I want to give you some criteria that we've been looking at as an elder team to try and make that decision, because it'd be fair to say, like, how are you guys going to know? Uh, unless God just kind of shouts something out of the sky, how do we get leadership from God in something like this? And we've just been trying to look at some practical aspects of life, uh, our church finances, the economy, church engagement, like with the body, and then missional mobilization. Those have been four categories that we have been going to again and again in prayer and in conversation to try and sense God's leadership. So let me just run through those very quickly. First of all, in terms of our finances as a church, they've never been better in 20 years. We are just blown away. Um, your giving has been so faithful and so generous. Uh, we're actually ahead of our giving goal and we just have seven weeks left in this uh, ministry year. So with just seven weeks left, we have been meeting and are meeting our giving goal. Deep Roots, we've had over $170,000 given to Deep Roots uh, year to date uh, since we began this process at the beginning of March. And uh, that's actually ahead of where we need to be to meet our fulfillments, which is over a 36-month period. But... Up to this point, we're well ahead of that goal. Um, so from a financial perspective, we're as healthy as we've ever been, and uh, we are really in a great position to handle the financial aspect of this. Um, one great encouragement, God has really provided for us in an amazing way. Certainly, it'd be nice if we just had a whole bucket load of money come in out of nowhere, but also... You know, when you save money, that's, a, that's also an encouraging thing. So if you'll remember, when we started this, our project cost was $2.2 million. And that was just an estimate, just to give us a ballpark. Um, as we looked closer and closer at the scope of the project and materials and all of that, that price came down to $1.97 million. And we got our final pricing about two weeks ago, I think it was, and we're down to $1.8 or just a hair over 1.8. So, a, a four, almost a $400,000 swing. Um, so encouraging to see that savings. So with that savings and then our financial position as a church, um, we really are in the best shape we could possibly hope for. Economically, does anybody in here know the future? Because I would love to talk to you. <laughs> 
So when it comes to the economy, honestly, we all kind of look out there and we go, wow, there's a lot of questions. Um, What we always have to decide about as a church is, do we let all of those questions keep us from moving forward in the mission of God? Especially when it comes to our campus being a place where we can serve that mission in our community. I don't want to dismiss economic concerns, but here's what we've seen so far. Specifically as it relates to Tennessee, we are among the healthiest states in the country. We are rebounding from all of the financial stuff that's happened. Now, it's not over. There will certainly still be some implications of this season that we've been in. But we feel like things are healthy enough, certainly in our state, but, but certainly in our city and our county, that um, we feel like we can continue to move forward. Even our giving is an indication that uh, we have not been drastically affected economically as a church. So we feel like that's a good sign. Congregational engagement. Um, Though we have been slow to come back live, and that's understandable, there's a lot of questions and concerns around that, we've still had a great good bit of engagement online. So we have been engaging as a church kind of in all the different ways that we could, and that's been very encouraging. Community groups have been staying connected. Some have been meeting, so that's been a great sign of engagement. There are Bible studies going on. Uh, Our women's uh, ministry, Miriam shared this a week or two ago, they're establishing a discipleship curriculum that's going to take off this fall. Lots of great signs of engagement, so we're encouraged by that. Um, The last missional mobilization, I would say that's the one area, honestly, that we've had the greatest question about. And that's not a statement about any of us. It's really a statement about all of us and how not only as a church but us as individuals, we're going to have to make a shift away from a focus primarily on how we are being affected. And I'm I'm not dismissing that. But haven't we all been very focused on the effect on us? We need to shift to a focus on what God has called us to do in our city and beyond. And that is a step of faith. And we are planning and preparing to take those steps. So so again, this is about making room for the mission of God, not only in a facility, but in our lives. And that's what we're going after. Our staff team is meeting this Tuesday for strategic planning to look to the next ministry year and make some plans to have some impact by God's grace. Love for you to pray for that. So, in light of all of those things, um, we feel ready to move forward. Our financing is in place. Our builder is in place. Our designs are ready to go. And so um, this may startle you a little bit, but we're ready to break ground on the 27th of this month. So, (laughs) there you go. And here's our thinking. Um, To wait even a month or two months or six months is like our, all those things that I just described, they're not going to improve any more than they already are. And so this is very this is an advantageous time for us to move forward because there's less activity happening in our campus, so a lot more freedom for our builder to just get after it and get it done. Um, but also, whenever this pandemic, however it resolves itself or whatever, we're going to need space. 
for sure. We needed space before the pandemic, but we're going to need it all the more as we go forward. So um, you're going to see some activity this week as they prepare, and then on the 27th, we'll break ground, and then it's probably about a seven, seven eight-month process, possibly faster, but we'll promise low and hopefully deliver high on that. Okay, so be in prayer. If you have any questions at all, please grab me or Jeff, um, and we'd be glad to talk to you about that. Okay, all right, let's get into the word here. Luke 18. Man, what a great passage. It's so funny. Like, we don't plan these things. The Burrow lesson, that literally just landed on the same day. How about that? So uh, let's just go home. I'm just kidding. Now, I want to ask you a question to start with, and I may step on some toes here, but that's okay. Um, How's your prayer life? A lot of us might say, not great. Maybe more of us would say, not not really good at all. That's possible. I have found when I talk to people about their prayer life, and I felt this as well, but, but we can get kind of insecure because we're not sure like maybe how to pray or when to pray or what to pray or what to expect when we do pray. Like we have all of these questions. It makes us very insecure. And so guess what happens? We don't pray. And I think the enemy would love that if we just wouldn't pray. Um, it's tempting to approach prayer more as a duty than as a privilege. I've, I've fallen into that a time or two. Um, it's easy to take prayer for granted. Just to go, you know, I know I got it, so I'll use it when I need it. That, that's a real easy mindset to fall into. I love what Paul Miller says in his book, A Praying Life. Because we can seemingly do life without God, praying seems nice but unnecessary. Nothing could be further from the truth. And I know this about me. The priority of prayer in my life rises to the level of my perceived need and my heartfelt desire for God. When those two things are in a good place... I'm praying like crazy. But when they're not, you'll see that drop off. Now, we've seen prayer mentioned a a number of times as as we've made our way through Luke. Actually, several of those mentions are of Jesus going away privately to pray, right? So that was a priority in his life. And we're operating under an assumption that if God in the flesh, if our Savior felt a need to pray, is it fair to say that every human who's ever walked the face of the earth has a need to pray? Can we all agree on that? We we have a need. There's no doubt. We just have different levels of understanding about how significant that need is. Let me give you some biblical vision for praying. Um, and, and I'm not giving you Bible verses per se, but I, these are just some takeaways just in my own s- story and walking with God and studying. Here's four uh, purposes of prayer. First of all, prayer is our way of communing 
with God. Now think about this. God gave us words and phrases, language. Why did he do that? So that we would have a cognitive way of understanding interaction. Language is the basis of relationship. It always has been. God created all of the universe with what? A word. And so language, prayer, that's our way of communing with our creator. Secondly, prayer is our way of aligning our hearts with God's heart. See, when I put into words what's going on in here, and then I look at what God says about himself and his plans in this, I I can see where there might be a gap, where I might be off track. But if I'm not praying, if I'm not putting into words what I have in my heart, it's hard to know whether I'm aligned with him or not. Thirdly, prayer is our way of welcoming the activity of God. Just read through the Psalms. The psalmists are always inviting God to be God and to work on their behalf, to come alongside them in in the face of great celebration and great misery. So it's our way of welcoming God. And then lastly, prayer is a means of cultivating fruitful community in the body of Christ. It's so vital that we pray together, that we talk to God together. It's not just an individual thing, a solo pursuit. It's it's vital that we build our community around prayer. So with those purposes in mind, let's look at Luke 18. Jesus here, as he did in Luke 11, is teaching about prayer. Now here he's using parables, which are just fictional stories that he makes up to teach a principle... And he's going to teach about two essential qualities of prayer, persistence and penitence. Persistence and penitence. So in the first parable, he paints a portrait of persistence, and he gives us the why right at the beginning in verse 1. Look there. And he, that is Jesus, told them, those that were around him, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So he doesn't always do this, but here he actually gives us the purpose for the parable at the beginning. He's cultivating persistent prayer in his followers. Now he's not just telling them, you need to be this and do this. He's going to actually give them reason for being and doing. He's going to help give them some motivation. The fact that he says they ought always to pray and not lose heart gives us the idea that they're probably going to face some delay and difficulty, right? Otherwise, why tell them to do that? He seems to be saying to his disciples, you can't let your circumstances interfere with your conversation with God. Because that's what's going to happen. Some hard circumstances. Remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. (laughs) He's got a cross, a burial, and a resurrection ahead of him, and they have no clue. And then the heat's going to come. And if they let their circumstances interfere with their conversation, they will lose their way. He gives three encouragements just in that opening statement. First of all, he says, always pray. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that literally I am always in prayer? 
which would mean it'd be really hard to think about anything else or talk to anybody else or do anything else. So what does that mean? Well, well maybe it's about praying about everything, that there's no aspect of life that I can't take to God and gain his wisdom and guidance. I, it seems to also suggest that prayer should not be my last resort. Like when I run out of all my own resources and then I finally turn to God and go, hey, can you give me a hand? No, it's not, it's not my last resort. It's my first priority. It's what I do first. I'm always seeking his leadership, his guidance, his enabling before I move forward. Those purposes that I mentioned a moment ago, those are great motivation for praying always. Secondly, not losing heart. Don't lose heart. Don't give up asking when waiting is hard. That's actually a beautiful place to see God step in and do things that only God can do. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. God is not obligated to meet our timetables, but he is good. And that's why we keep on praying and not losing heart. Lastly, I think uh, there's an assumption here, and that is God is listening. God is listening. Let me give you a couple of passages. Uh, Psalm 4.3, the psalmist says, Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. David was confident in that. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. I will not lose heart. 1 Peter 3.12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears open to their prayer. You can be confident God is listening. So now to the parable, beginning in verse 2. Jesus said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now let's break down this passage, this little story, very quickly. We have a corrupt judge and a victimized widow. Now how do we know the judge is corrupt? Well, think about the context. This is in Israel, and a judge of Israel certainly would have feared God, right? Like, how else would they get into that kind of position? But not only that, they would be in that role for the good of the people that they're serving. The, the fear of man in this instance would have been, I'm in this position to take care of people who can't take care of themselves. He's neither of those. He's totally disqualified, but this is just a parable. God, Jesus is just telling us a story. But keep that in mind. That's the corrupt judge. And then we have a victimized widow. She's been scammed by an adversary. We don't know who it is. We don't know what it is. But apparently she is defenseless. She can't do anything about it without legal aid. And so she keeps coming to this judge. And she's relentless. Like, Can you imagine that guy just every day? It's me again. <laughs> I need justice. 
And he keeps sending her away over and over and over again. Now that word justice, that means to avenge or to vindicate, perhaps even to punish a wrongdoer. So she literally needs that judge to step in for her, defend her, and get what get to her what she is owed. We're assuming it's a financial situation. Eventually, the judge breaks down. He gives in. But, but what we need to remember is he's not giving in because he really cares about this widow. He just wants to get rid of her. And, and so he's like, I'm going to send her on her way. It's, it's shameless. It's self-serving. Um, it's, there's a funny little phrase in here when he says, so that she will not beat me down. Literally, that means so she won't give me a black eye. Now, I don't think it's because he thought she was going to punch him in the face, but it, it, would have been, it would have been detrimental to his reputation if he sent away and continued to send away a widow. So he's just looking, for, looking out for himself. That's the only reason that he does that. Now, so if we stopped here, so Jesus is teaching about prayer. He tells us this story. If that was all that he told us of the story, what we might assume is just keep bothering God in prayer and eventually you'll wear him down and he'll give you what you want. Do you see how that would happen? But I want you to look at the way he explains his parable beginning in verse 6. The Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Now that's interesting. You would think he would, he would be focusing on the widow. Like, do what the widow does. Just keep pestering. Keep bothering. Just irritate God enough so that he'll do what you want. But he doesn't do that. He says, listen to the judge. Listen to the judge. He's just concerned about himself. He doesn't care about the widow. He's an evil He's an evil man. And here's the punchline. God's not like that. You don't have to bother him. Pestering him, (laughs) that's not going to give you any more advantage with him than if you didn't. The point is not in the pestering. The point is in the character of the one you're going to in prayer. Look at verse 7. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So based on the character of God, you can be persistent. Not to wear him down, but to to be so in tune with him that you will be going after the things that he's going after. The comparison here in this parable is a lesser to a greater. The the corrupt judge is the lesser. God is the greater. And the goodness of God is the reason his followers should persist. Now there's some sticky issues in this explanation that I think if you're honest and I'm honest, we read it and we just go, okay, hold on a second. I got some questions here. What about the timing? Because this sounds like if I'm crying day and night and I'm asking God to give me justice, that I should pretty much expect that to happen tomorrow. 
It said speedily, right? So how many of you have prayed day and night consistently throughout your life and it just, the next day, like you just bring that to the Lord and then the next day it happens again and again and again and again. Or how many of you have had to pray over and over and over and over again waiting for an answer? Yeah, that's actually more normal, I think, than what I described a moment ago. Why do God's people pray for justice and experience persecution and suffering, martyrdom? That, that's just hard to reconcile with this statement that God will surely bring justice to his elect. What's going on here? And why does God delay? It actually sounds like he's going to delay, but then he's going to bring something speedily. So what's going on here? This just doesn't seem to jibe with our experience, does it? No wonder the Lord said we ought to always pray and not lose heart based upon the character of God. Now, here's how I think we can best understand this explanation. We have to read it, as always, in context. Luke wrote chapter 17 before he wrote chapter 18. And there weren't chapters and Bible verses and all that stuff when he originally wrote it. It was just a flow of thought in his gospel. So we have to understand the beginning of chapter 18 with what came before it in chapter 17. Now, do you remember what that was about? It was about the coming of the Son of Man. It was the return of Christ. It was the day, quote, the day when all things would be made new, when the justice of God would come perfectly to a broken world. That's the context of 17. So as we go into chapter 18 and we're talking about praying and waiting and persisting, Would it make more sense for Jesus to be talking about you and I getting personal justice tomorrow? Or would it be about this great assurance that you and I persist in prayer for justice, knowing that there is a day coming? And in the context of eternity, it's speedily. Like this is just a little blip. And then there's all of eternity where everything will be right and new. God's justice will be served with perfection. It seems to me that that reconciles some of what we experience in the day-to-day with what Christ is trying to emphasize overall. The reason for Christ's delay is uh, beautifully explained in 2 Peter 3. Let me read this to you. and I think this is what we would need to have in mind. The Lord is not slow... To fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, which was talked about in Luke 17, will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That sounds pretty sudden. 
It sounds like God's justice will come speedily. And we can pray faithfully with that in mind. Uh, Bob Deffenbaugh says this, We need not worry about the Lord's faithfulness, but only about our own faithfulness. And that's actually how Jesus wraps up this first parable. He asks a question. Look at it. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, which is his focus, will he find faith on earth? So the whole question is, will you and I persist in prayer in light of the final destination that Christ has for us? That's going to be a reflection of our faithfulness. Persistence in crying out to God is a reflection of that. Write this in your notes. The priority of prayer in your life, just as I said it was in mine, will rise to the level of your perceived need and heartfelt desire for God. See, He is the object of our affection. And He will bring justice. But in His timing. A a prayer that I think captures the cry of the elect in this passage would be uh, what, what Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the cry of the elect. Um, until the Son of Man returns, I think there's a biblical principle. I've actually said it a hundred times over the course of years as a church, but I'm going to say it again, and I'm going to try and explain it a little bit. The principle, it's in your outline. God will always give us what we need to do what he's called us to do. God will always give us what we need to do what he's called us to do. Now, how does he do that? There's, there's four supplies that I believe he'll give us. One of those is material possession. Every good gift, James says, comes down from the Father of lights. So if you have money, a house, clothes to wear, car to drive, a job to work, I mean, if you have all those things, those were provided for you by God. He will provide for you materially. He will also provide physical protection. Not all the time, the apostles all were martyred. So God would have had to withhold his protection, his physical protection for them, if they were to be martyred, right? So, that's not an all the time, but there are plenty of times when God does intervene and protect us physically. We have evidences of that as well in the gospel. Now, if those two things were to fall apart, because I know that Christians materially suffer all around the world, have all through history. And I know Christians have suffered physically at the hands of persecutors all throughout history. If those two provisions are withheld, here are two others that God will give us, and we need these to do what he's called us to do. He will give us spiritual power and I can't explain that, but if you talk to those who are suffering, they will speak of God doing a work in them so that they might endure. And I don't know how else to explain that other than spiritual power. It's not will power. 
Because our willpower runs out pretty fast. It's spiritual power to endure. And then last thing that God provides is eternal perspective. He continues to remind us of eternity. That things there are far more valuable and significant than anything we will experience here. So material provision, physical protection, spiritual power, and eternal perspective. Those things will help you and I persist in prayer. Second parable, a posture of penitence. Verse 9 says, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So now we know the audience that he's specifically going after with this parable. Uh, There were some who thought too highly of themselves and too lowly of others, and they related to their world in light of that. It's interesting that he reveals this crisis of character in a context of prayer. He basically is saying, I'm going to show you the character of these men by how they pray and what they pray about. So he takes us to the temple. Before we get there... um, It's interesting, and he just passed away on Friday, but J.I. Packer uh, has a great statement, one of my all-time favorites, about prayer. He says, prayer is the measure of the person spiritually in a way that nothing else is, so that how we pray is as important a question as we will ever face. Man, you can learn a lot about a person by how they pray. Andrew Murray, in his book, The Believer's Prayer Life, says this, The flesh can say prayers well enough, calling itself religious for so doing, and thus satisfy conscience. But the flesh has no desire or strength for the prayer that strives after intimate knowledge of God, that rejoices in fellowship with Him, and that continues to lay hold of His strength. So finally it comes to this, The flesh must be denied and crucified. That happens in the context of prayer. So let's look at these two men. Verse 10 tells us they went up to the temple to pray. This is the temple of Jerusalem. I showed you a picture of that a couple of weeks ago, so that will be helpful for you to remember the layout, particularly of the Holy of Holies. Those two men go up to pray. One is a Pharisee. The other is a tax collector. Now think about this. You're a first century Jew. You're listening to this description. You hear about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Who's good and who's bad? Well, the Pharisee, I mean, he's the picture of religious piety. I mean, he's the model. He's the example, right? And the tax collector, they are the worst. You just said you don't get lower than that. Everybody hates tax collectors. So we're thinking, we're, we're listening to the parable. So the Pharisee's the good guy and the tax collector's the bad guy, right? Wrong. It's completely flipped. When these guys start praying and we start to see their internal world, it's eye-opening. Look at verse 11. The Pharisee... Standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I, I, I feel like I need to like do King James language here in a deep voice. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This we're calling pompous praying. He's standing by himself, probably in a very prominent place that no one else would have the courage to go. He's out in front of everybody. And he's probably praying in a loud voice so everybody can hear him. And he sets the bar really high. Like, I'm not like murderers and extortioners and sex traffickers. Like, I'm not like any of those folks. Really? What about greed and envy and lust? All those other, quote, lesser sins. And then he boasts about his tithing. His fasting, his religious practices. It's interesting, he asks for nothing. He starts his prayers like a Thanksgiving psalm, but he basically thanks himself for what a great guy he is, and then asks for nothing, and he's pretty content with that. Contrast that with the prayer of the tax collector. He's standing far off probably in a corner of the temple somewhere where no one can see him. He's probably kind of uncomfortable being there because he gets the idea of the presence of God. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He's so aware of the vast gap between him and a holy God. He beat his breast, and he has one request, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is penitent praying. He asks for God's mercy, which is really, he's pointing to propitiation, big Fancy biblical theological word, but it's the idea of a satisfactory substitute. And what he's asking God is, I need you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. The picture is the ark, particularly the mercy seat. When he's saying, have mercy on me, he's saying, yeah, what you do once a year, you know, when the high priest goes in, there's a picture of it. That top piece, that's the mercy seat. The high priest would go in there and and would place the blood of the sacrificed lamb, would place that on the top of the mercy seat. And the physical picture is God is looking down on, on sinful humanity. And he can't do anything but judge that because he's holy. And that's that's who he is. He's just. But when that blood is spread there, that satisfies the wrath of God and he is able to see who's on the other side of that blood as completely righteous. That's the picture. That's propitiation. That's exactly what this nasty old tax collector is asking for. And he gets it. He didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to perform He didn't have to know big words. 
He didn't have to be super smart. He didn't have to have anybody like him. He just had to ask. Lord, have mercy on me. And Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, forgiven, made whole, vindicated. And the other, the religious Pharisee, which represents anyone who thinks too highly of themselves and too lowly of others. That's what the Pharisee represents. They leave unchanged. They leave unforgiven. And they remain under the wrath of God. Jesus wraps up his explanation of this penitent praying with the statement, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Just count on it. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one who comes to the Lord with his need, that need will be met. Um, one of the most beautiful summaries, I think, of this whole concept here is in First Peter 5. I want to read this to you, and I want you to listen and I want you to respond however you need to. I don't know where you are today and what's going on in your life. And as you hear about praying, whether that has to do with persistence or with penitence, I just want you to hear this and then respond appropriately. I've got some questions for your so what, but let me read this to you first. Peter writes... In uh, chapter 5, verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That'd probably be a, a good passage to put inside, right? Memorize that. Let that wash over you over and over again. Because it's, it's an invitation and it's an assurance. And we need both. As we move into a time of so what, where we ask the Lord to show us how we might need to apply this message to our lives, I just want to ask you four questions. Um, and again, just pick one and uh, respond as you see fit. So here's the first one. Just prayerfully consider these. Do you fail to pray? 
And if you do, then just ask the Lord to show you why. What is it that's standing in the way? What keeps you from talking with God? Secondly, do you persevere in prayer? If not, again, what keeps you from staying at it? What causes you to quit? Do you take pride in your praying? That could look like a hundred things. But as you come to the Lord, is there any evidence of pride, either in yourself or in your situation or whatever? Do you bring pride into that conversation? And then lastly, do you pray with a penitent heart? How comfortable are you coming into the presence of God with all your junk? And just being honest with him about that. So take a few moments and uh, take those questions into consideration. Talk with God right now (laughs) and see what he has to say to you through his Holy Spirit. Take a moment. Lord, I'm thankful for the reminder this morning that you're listening. And I thank you that you invite us to come boldly before the throne of grace. That you call us to bring anything that might make us anxious to you because you care. Lord, whatever work you want or need to do in our lives as it relates to prayer, we invite you to do that work and uh, change us, help us to grow, and then use us as we align our hearts with yours in this beautiful mission of redemption that you are completing. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for this community of faith. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.